Hi, I'm John Beely, CEO of Online Visas, and uh, I'm here with Conversations in Immigration. And uh, please, uh, this is going to be on our YouTube channel. Uh, please go to YouTube for the Online Visas channel and subscribe and share it. And today we have a very special guest. It's Jonathan Wadsden of Wadsden Bannis, and he is a litigator that has won the very famous IT Serve Alliance versus Cisna case on March 10th, 2020 in the DC District Court. Very happy to have John here with us. Um, I was involved at some level in uh, with IT Serve's Political Action Committee in finding uh, a lawyer to represent this case. And uh, everybody at IT Serve couldn't be happier uh, that Jonathan was picked and he'd done such an excellent job on that. Uh, John, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, sure. Well, uh, tell us a little bit um, about you. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing and how you got to where you're at today. So right now, we, the firm that I'm a partner in, we have three attorneys. And the th three of us knew each other when we all worked for the government for the same office in the Department of Justice, which is the Office of Immigration Litigation. And we... Yeah. You know, we used to sit there, we'd be frustrated having to take some ridiculous positions in court. And uh, we would all drink and over beers say, I can't believe that we're winning these cases. We shouldn't be winning these cases. You know, why isn't the immigration bar, you know, mopping the floor with us? Because we have to take some ridiculous position. Yeah, fast forward a few years, maybe 10 years, and, uh, We've all jumped ship and now we're in a private sector doing what we said should have been done 10 years ago. Right. So it's, it's been a wild ride. So we have uh, Jeff Forney. He's a sen he was a senior litigation counsel for the Department of Justice and Brad Bannis and myself. And Brad was also at DOJ's oil. And then I was at oil and then went to the AEO's um, administrative appeals office a little bit later. But it's, it's, uh, it's been a fun ride. That's excellent. You know, it's kind of funny you say that because other bodies of law, that's very, very common, right? So folks will go yeah. to the DA's office, um, learn all the outside of prosecuting cases, and then they become the wealthiest and most powerful uh, defense bar guys, right? I mean, that's a pretty common in that, but we don't see it a lot in immigration because we haven't really seen a lot of litigation in immigration until recently, right? Yeah, so immigration is kind of an oddity because every other, like you say, every other industry that's out there, you've got a engagement or lobbying arm, mm -hmm. advocacy arm, and then you have a litigation arm of their advocacy strategies, which keeps the government honest. Right. Im immigration for the longest time was missing that litigation arm to keep everybody honest. And I think most immigration attorneys were very good at predicting where the wind was blowing out of the agency mm -hmm. and learned to adapt so that they could serve their clients the most efficient way possible. Because litigation is not terribly efficient when it comes down to it. But in the current Especially immigration, you know, yeah. because, I, you know, I, I litigated before I got in and, and I litigated uh, against the U.S. in a number of different bodies, right? Bureau of Indian yeah. Affairs, um, Labor. Um, it was designed for that, but immigration, you know, we didn't even structure our cases the right way. It was, it was a unit. People wanted a visa, right? So we charge, yeah. okay, here's what it takes to get you a visa, not here's what my billable hour rate is. It didn't make any sense if they didn't get that visa to launch into a federal lawsuit because it would just be way too expensive in yeah. what they were doing. And time consuming a lot of times. So, for sure. I mean, the figuring out what the agency wants and giving it to them in the best interest of your client. 
with the current environment, there's no predictability. Right. I mean, very seasoned immigration attorneys like yourself who have seen the developments of the agency, have known where they're going for years, now can't figure out what in the world they want because right. it's, it's so uh, chaotic, for lack of a better word. So litigation has become kind of a necessary component to push back on some of the crazy. It really is, and, and, and I want to talk about something that wasn't part of what we thought we'd talk about, but I think this is important for the, for the discussion, is when I was part of that committee and we were selecting, you know, the law firms to represent the association, and ITServe Alliance is this association of more than a thousand tech companies, and they're all, um, you know, they're the, they're the folks that are on the front lines of where immigration's really been fighting, and it's the staffing model, right, and, and mm-hmm. we've seen that with the... Uh, Started the Newfield memo back in 2010. That's what got these guys together. Uh, there were 10 of them, 10 of these guys um, in Irving, Texas, uh, that uh, you know knew each other. But they, they became an association to deal with that memo. And I got involved in 2017, uh, really, with the Trump presidency started, and it was it was evolving. And then when uh, the 2018 memo came out, then the the entity had to look at litigation and had to look at this. And so we we met with a lot of different firms really big ones, uh, really known ones. And what was really uh, attractive about your process was not just the fact that you were from the governmental side and that you knew where the soft part of the underbelly was. And you did, and that was helpful. But really, you created a model that was attractive, right? It was attractive because um, the way the other firms were looking at it, the way the classic litigation firms were looking at it, was something that was just going to be cost prohibitive. Uh, for anybody to get involved. It was going to be too expensive. One of them was offering they could help us find an agency that would get behind it and fund it. <laughs> you got to sign us up, but this agency, they'll come and pay for it. And we're like, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. Um, and it was just weird to even look at it that way. But you came up with a model that was inexpensive, case-based, and kind of similar to how we had to, as, as attorneys that were adjudicating on behalf of companies or individuals, it had a unit price to it. Tell a little bit about how you came to that, what, uh, you know, what you think of that and how you're really kind of structuring your business around that, right? Yeah, so there's two different types of Administrative Procedure Act cases. You have what it's called a facial challenge to a policy or regulation, and then you have what's called an as-applied challenge. Mm-hmm. And that distinction makes a huge difference because of the statute of limitations. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at a regulation that's older than six years, the statute of limitations, you're no longer able to do a direct or a facial challenge. Okay. And in the IT serve case, one of the regulations we were trying to invalidate was the itinerary regulation, which was initially promulgated back in 1991. Okay. So the only way we really could attack that was through an as-applied challenge. I see. So we, we figured out the issues that we wanted to fight, and then we got the best cases that we could find where those – uh, visas have been de- denied on those issues. Mm-hmm. So not only that we could invalidate those regulations that we we're challenging, but also put them in context for the court. So instead of arguing in the abstract that this policy memo is a de facto regulation, right. we could say, this is how the agency is applying this policy memo. Look, it's a de facto regulation. <laughs> so, you know, you, right. so it, it was just, uh, and the, the court noted that several times in its decision that yes, this is as applied. We can see how they're using it. It is unlawfully applied. 
one of the most interesting things in that process of selecting you as the attorney was I was the only attorney on the initial panel. I think it evolved a little bit by the time you executed, but at, for, at the beginning, I was the only one. And so what I did is uh, I, I took all the uh, denials that anybody in the uh, association would give me, different lawyers, different uh, companies. And I, uh, it was really enlightening uh, to find out how immigration denied cases. I mean, you, you always see your own work and, and it's usually, they're attacking it the same way, but to see a lot of different companies and a lot of different lawyers, it was fascinating. We found kind of five major reasons, but when, when a company would be really bad at it, they would throw the kitchen sink at them, right? They'd have nine different ways they would deny them. It's kind of like uh, they just pile on and they say, okay, what about this? What about that? What about this? Which was horrible for the company, but really, really enlightening as an attorney that is putting these cases forward on here's how they think, right? And so what I did with my practice was how do we look at the documents that we're putting together? How do we counsel our clients on what should their contract look like? What are, what's the language that should be in there? What about, you know, their supervision? You know, where does immigration come from and what cases are they using? It was really interesting for me. It was a lot of work. I mean, it, it took, um, you know, weeks and weeks to, to look at all these and divide them up. Um, but that's, that's what you're talking about. How are they applying these things? And we saw them, uh, you know, the, the extent that they would go, especially at that time, there was a case called One Direction. Is that right? Um, I think it's One Direction. Um, Anyway, anyway I, I forget the name of it. But this case, it was funny that we would watch, um, you'd see one, one adjudicator would say it doesn't apply, right? Another adjudicator would say it doesn't apply to us because it's from another place. And another one would just argue with it, right? And we found that pretty interesting. Um, but I, but, but, but I, I see where you're coming from on how you approached, how you litigate on, on this issue. And uh, it was a, an interesting thing for me to go through it. So let's go a little bit, let's break down um, IT server lines, right? Um, so, and anybody looks at the architecture of a, uh, of a lawsuit, um, who are the, who are the plaintiffs? Who are the parties in the, in the case? So the, the lead party was IT Service Alliance. Okay. They were making facial challenges against some of the policies and regulations. Then we had other co-plaintiffs that were actual companies that had denials at issue in the case. Okay. And those are important to, we were able to avoid a whole bunch of jurisdictional battles on whether or not IT serve could be a plaintiff on some of these issues or not, mm -hmm. because we had the as applied challenges, because there's no question legally as to whether or not a company with a denial is allowed to sue and challenge the basis mm -hmm. of that denial. Right. So we had all of the, the companies, we had IT serve, and they were the plaintiffs in the case. Did you have any individual uh, beneficiaries, the employees? Not in that case. We have taken other individual beneficiary cases to court, and it's we haven't had any problem winning that issue of whether or not they're allowed to sue in their own right, right. especially if they have an approved I-140 or something like that. Right. Where, But it's always best, I think, to have the company as the named plaintiff. Okay, good to know. All right, and so um, the next architectural question is, where did you sue and why? So immigration is... As you know, if you're an immigration attorney, your clients are going to be all over the country, right? And which makes venue difficult for repeated lawsuits. Mm -hmm. But venue is always proper against the federal government in D.C. where they're headquartered, right. especially since the, this policy memo came out of D.C. and that's the right. real issue. Mm -hmm. uh, since everybody can sue in D.C., it made the most sense 
to file it there because if we could win in DC, every subsequent case that gets filed in DC is gonna have the same outcome for all practical purposes. So to give it the most you know, bang for the buck, that was why we decided to go with DC. So with DC also, um, home of the federal government, and uh, the D.C. courts, the district court, the circuit court, um, have the most familiarity with agency law, too, right? So yeah, you, definitely. It's less of a guessing game there. Um, you don't have to educate judges. Yeah, because you're already you're dealing with a pretty arcane area of law, which is immigration law. Sure. It takes a lot of spoon feeding and a lot of, you know, time to educate the court. Some of the district courts around the country not only do you have to educate them on immigration law, but you have to kind of give a primer on the basics of admin law. Right. The The courts in DC, they're dialed in. They understand at the APA, they understand admin law. So really it's just a matter of applying what they already know and explaining immigration law, which makes your job a lot easier. Now we've, we've talked some other things, some other times on, on this subject, obviously, uh, because it's as close near and dear to our heart. Um, some logic now of cases going forward, um, you, you have some uh, differing thoughts on whether DC would be the only place you'd file those cases. Um, why would you choose other venues? So it, it really depends on what the government's next move is going to be. If they try to ignore that decision except when sued in DC, it's going to make sense to start attacking them in other places, right. namely where service centers are located at, I think okay. would be the next step. And uh, just kind of going for the throat. Because if we can get injunctions against the agency in district courts where the service centers are located, we can you know, cut the head off the snake, so to speak. Yeah, so you and I talked about a case I brought, um, that we brought in New Orleans just because we had to, because we needed mm-hmm. a temporary restraining order uh, on an athlete under a fee visa. And uh, we had a lot of, uh, consternation and discussion because uh, the circuit court over New Orleans uh, is is one of the worst courts uh, for defending uh, on our side of immigration, right? Um, so uh, always something we take into consideration. We were lucky um, that in our case, we got the temporary restraining order from the judge and then immigration just conceded the point in our, in our we had a visa that was uh, revoked. So we got the visa back, but, uh, but yeah, that's an important factor when you're, uh, when you're deciding which venue as well, right? Yeah, it, especially when it's a very close call. If it's a close call, you need to look at all of the options that benefit your client. Right. And venue is definitely a consideration. Um, for us, we like DC. We're not really, we don't really think there's a bad court out there for us. So we're not too worried. As long as we're bringing tight cases, I think we'll be okay as long as they're not close calls. Well, excellent. And, um, the next question in the architecture of the lawsuit, um, what was the problem? What were, uh, what, 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 what were you trying to solve? Uh, and then I'm gonna ask you the issues, but what was, what was the landscape? What was, yeah. who was being wronged by whom in what way? So starting with the Neufeld memo, we saw that there were certain factions within the agency that really wanted to begin eliminating the consulting staffing industries sure. out of, out of immigration. Right. And then with the new, when Trump came into office, one of the first things we saw was an attack on STEM OPT and Mm -hmm. consulting companies. Right. And they changed some rules, as you'll recall, they changed some rules on their website 
not the regulations, but they basically prohibited consulting and staffing companies from using STEM OPT. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, that was one of the first cases that IT Serve actually filed. We filed a preliminary injunction in that case. And the day before they uh, had to answer in court, they changed their website back to the prior version, mm-hmm. eliminated all reference, and acted like it had never happened. <laughs> so, so, That's what we so, got in my case. In the, yeah. yeah. So that was uh, their opening salvo against the staffing industry. So their next move against the staffing industry or consulting industry was to chop them off from the H-1Bs entirely by doubling down on the Newfeld memo and requiring that employers show actual control of day-to-day operations and the right. means in which somebody does their job, which we argued was a contradiction of its own regulation. The other thing that was at issue was they were requiring, you know, basically a proof of guaranteed specific work assignments for the entire duration of the visa. Right. For three years. They right. wanted to know where your employee was going to be sitting for every day of yeah. three years and what they would be doing for three years, which is an impossibility, but more importantly, for our perspective, it violated the statute, right. which allows you to put somebody in a non-productive status for life of work. And then the, the final thing that we were seeing that was unique to the consulting staffing industries was the shortened approval periods. So mm-hmm. we'd see approvals for a day, we'd see a month, you in know, the past. In the past, yeah. Right. You know, you need your DeLorean to go back in time to use right. your visa. <laughs> so uh, it just really crazy things. But what they were doing was they were just sending you an approval notice with no explanation for why part of your visa had been denied right. and part approved, which is a pretty blatant violation of the Administrative Procedure Act, which requires them to give you a written explanation. Mm-hmm. So those are the, those are the three things that were starting to really crush the industry and it bared out in their statistics where, you know, companies with 98%, 99% approval rates went down to some of them as low as 20 and 30% approval rates. Right. When this memo came about. That's interesting because I've seen the overall memos, right? So in 2016, last year of Obama administration, H1Bs were 88%. We saw mm-hmm. in 2017, which was before the litigation, before even the memo of 2018, they dropped initially to 59%, right? And then, yeah. so I always knew that within that H-1B percentage, it had to be much lower percentage of approval for the staffing companies. Yeah. So what you're saying is after the, the memo in 2018 comes, it's a 20 to 30% approval of staffing There was companies. a lot of companies, yeah, there was a lot of companies that their approval rates dropped down that low initially. Now, the, the irony is, some of those same companies they sued in the, the first round of the IT serve case, the following year they had nearly a hundred percent approval rate. <laughs> so, so it was kind of, it, it was a testament to how bad the agency does not like right. to be sued. So they tried right. to stay away from those plaintiffs. Well, that's good. That's really good. We know we've, we've done some things. We'll talk about it later. And just, mm-hmm. you know, our process was how do we change how a company looks at it, what it does? Yeah. Are, are you really a staffing company or are you a services company? You know, immigration would like to paint these guys as uh, you're just putting someone over there and you're getting some money for putting them there. And the reality is um, they were recruiting these people. They're training these Mm -hmm. people. um, They're training them in really sophisticated skill sets, right? AI, blockchain, uh, big data. I mean, the expense and and what they're doing and when they're putting them there, they're putting them there with the way they needed to do things, 
right? It was a really yeah. amazing and, and valuable service that's that's being done to keep Americans tech industry at the highest level. And the tech industry is really reliant on this space, right? Yeah. We really, really are. It, it doesn't make any sense why the U.S. government would be attacking its strongest industry and these folks that are helping it, especially when there was a negative unemployment rate in most U.S. cities. And if you look at any of the stats, for every one H-1B, you almost get two non-H-1B Americans' uh, jobs, right? And so yeah. they're attacking this thing that made no sense whatsoever. And so what we did was on a practical approach, how do we make a better visa application? How can we do this? And, and we got our approvals up to 95% when it was at 59%. But 100% is a lot better than 95%. <laughs> so good job, yeah. and we need. Well, you. <laughs> it was it was definitely entertaining. Okay, so let's go on to the next issue. So in the architecture of the of the lawsuit that we're still on, we've uh, we've gotten our uh, our problem. Okay, this is the problem, um, and you kind of touched on it. But do you want to touch on what were uh, what were the specific issues, or do you yeah, want to sure. go into what was the decision? So the the employer employee relationship issue like I said, required you to prove that you had actual day-to-day -day control over everything the employee was doing for three years. So what's interesting is they're applying this very convoluted common law test for the definition of who's an employer right. based, on, based on these Supreme Court cases, Darden and Clackamas. Right. Now, the, the problem with that is, is that had the agency not defined who a United States employer is in regulation, they might have been able to get away with that. But because they had actually gone through, yeah, they'd gone through the regulatory process and inserted a definition of United States employer into the reg. Right. And their definition says, you are the employer if you can hire, pay, fire, right. or otherwise control, right. which is one of those four things and you are the United States employer. So basically if you sign the LCA, you have the right to pay and you're the employer. Right. The agency basically took that or turned it into an and and required <laughs> you to prove all four of those things. Right. Which was definitely a contradiction of the reg. So anytime and, they have a policy that contradicts the reg, it's called a, an unlawful amendment to the regulation. Right. And that's what we went out at the uh, employer employee relationship issue. That's really interesting. So when I'm looking at all these denials, uh, you know, one of their favorite cases is Defensor, which we can talk mm -hmm. about a little bit later. But um, in the Fencer case, they, they would cherry pick some language, which is probably mostly dicta anyway, but, but they would just find something and beat us over the head with it. But in Defensor, they, uh, you know, there's four criteria in the visas uh, that, to meet the H-1B, one of which was if you could prove that you've required um, your employees to have this type of visa, right? And all you'd have to do is go back and we'd make a chart and we'd show here is the names of the employees with the same jobs, here's their diplomas and here's their job descriptions, right? And we'd say, okay, we did it. But in Defensor, they said, well, we don't, we can ignore if it's your own, if you don't have another one also. And what they said is in Defensor, like it was a, um, I guess a hospital, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that they said that the hospital was really the employer and not the staffing company that put somebody at the hospital. And they just kind of extended that as far and they would find all sorts of things like that, so um, so you went back and just used the regulation and said, this case doesn't apply here, right? Yeah, well, so defense is an interesting issue because it also hits on the next issue that we, we attacked, which was mm -hmm. this requirement to have these 
specific work assignments for three years. Right. So the employer-employee issue, the, the defining what the job is, and the specific work assignment issues were all basically attempts to limit the staffing industry's involvement in the H-1B process. But they, the Defensor case came out initially, it was challenging a decision I think that was written and finalized in 1997. And it went through the appellate process, you know, the district court and then the appeals process, analyzing the law as it was in 1997. Mm. Decision comes out in 2001. But in 1998, there was a major change to the statute governing H-1Bs. Okay. And that was called the QIA, the American Competitive Competitiveness and Workforce Improvement Act of 1998. Right. And there was a new provision in the statute that says that you can put somebody in a non-productive status right. when there is not work, when there's no work to perform, as long as you continue to pay them the prevailing wage. So Congress addressed the scenario that the agency was trying to regulate through its policy memos. And basically what they said is USCIS was wrong or INS at the time was wrong. This is how we want to do it going forward. As long as you continue to pay them, it's fine. You don't have to prove these continuous work assignments. So, so, so let's break that down for a second. And I just want to cut, mm -hmm. sorry to cut you off. But no, no. In the, in the practicality, there's two things in that. And I, and I think in this conversation, we're lawyers and we can get caught in the weeds really easily. But if people are watching this, there's a couple of things that, that you brought up that are interesting. Number one, um, you're attacking the concept of, of the agency, immigration, saying that you got to tell us what exactly someone's going to do for three years. Now, you and I are lawyers, and we hire other lawyers, and that would be like saying that we know who our next client is going to be, right? Yeah. We know every client that we're going to have for the next three years, and we know precisely what the attorneys or paralegals or whoever else we have are going to be working on. They're going to be working on this client's case. This is exactly what they're going to do for the next three years, and they won't deviate. That's what the expectation is on how immigration was looking at it, isn't it? Yeah. With an itinerary and everything and a letter from the client saying, yes, they're going to work on my case only for the next three years. It's a concept that only a government employee could come up with because right. they're the only ones that know what they'll be doing every day for the rest of their <laughs> professional lives. I think so. they're beating up the rest of us saying this is, a, <laughs> you know, you need to live this way too. Um, so the next thing um, on, on that, and, and I may have lost my, 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 my train of thought, but, it, but it, it jumped to mind is you mentioned, um, what was it? I'm sorry. Um, oh, I lost it. Why don't we jump, why don't we jump back uh, to where you were. So I just wanted to, to, to point it out how, how silly that was and how big of a victory, um, and we'll get to that in a second, that that's not the requirement anymore, um, mm -hmm. that people can just be hired to do certain skill sets that are based on their university degree and do it out without knowing exactly who they're going to be doing it for or where they're going to be, right? Yeah. Okay. So let's move on. I guess so um, we were talking about the issues still. Um, do you want to, and we were talking about breaking down Defensor um, and what it did and why I guess it's not what the problem was. Yeah, so once we got rid of, once we started attacking the employer-employee relationship and the specific work assignment issue, Defensor was their really only defense for that requirement to show you had continuous work assignments. Right. Okay. That was the only thing they could really point to. So the next issue was the practice of shortening the approval periods without right. explanation. And 
in my mind, that was the easiest of all these things to kill because so the, kill so the, the statute, the Administrative Procedure Act has in very clear language, a requirement that if a petition is denied in whole or in part, the agency is required to give a written explanation of its rationale for denying it, which all they were doing with these short-term approvals is giving you a, an approval notice saying, here's a day for a visa, here's a month, here's a year, which isn't explaining their rationale for why they denied the remaining, you know, two years or whatever right. you requested. Just doing it. So that very simple failure alone was enough to invalidate those short, short-term approvals. Or now, do you get everyone, what if they say the reason we're not giving you this is that um, I'm looking at your itinerary, mm -hmm. and, and we run into this all the time, uh, John, is that uh, you get an itinerary for a government entity in particular, that they would do one-year stints, right? Now, they'd renew them, and we've had some success of saying, look, we happen to be in a lucky factual situation that our client has had this contract for nine years. Here are the previous eight years of, you know, approval keep being done. Here's some emails showing how the process works. And, and when we had something like that, they, they did approve it. But we've seen denials, ours and others, um, where they would end it because the contract date or the itinerary date wouldn't go beyond that. Um, yeah. So that is, they are explaining it. Are you saying that your lawsuit won the fact that they can't just merely explain it, they have to have something they're relying on legally to do that? So yes, all of the above. So there was written denials on employer-employee relationship and written denials on specific work. And then there was approvals where they approved part of it. On, on right. those approvals where they approved a year or some, some other amount, they weren't explaining anything that they had done. They just give you the approval notice. And that was, you know, a failure to explain why it was denied in part. Okay. Very good. That's great. Okay. So we've, we've now gone who the parties are. Um, we've gone where you filed it and why we've got the problem. We've got the issues, right? Let's, uh, let's talk about the decision. I'm John Beely. I'm, I'm CEO of online visas and I'm with Jonathan Wasden. Uh, the litigator of the famous, now famous IT serve uh, versus Cisna case. And he's about to tell us um, how, uh, what the decision was. Uh, so Jonathan, tell us uh, uh, what happened. So long and the short of it, the court essentially threw out the Newfeld memo of 2010. Okay. And she said, the, the judge said that the agency has already regulated in very clear terms who a United States employer is. And this ridiculous common law test that the agency has created through policy memo, the Neufeld memo, contradicts the plain language of the regulation. Mm -hmm. So as long as you can hire, pay, fire, or otherwise control, you are the H-1B employer under the, the regulations. And so the entire rigmarole of you know, proving what, whether or not you're an employer was tossed out by the judge. The, uh, the next issue was the short-term, not the short-term, but the uh, specific work assignment issue. And there the, the court again agreed with us that the statute was very clear and Congress had considered what would happen if you didn't have work for an employee to do. Right. And it wasn't shortening the approval periods, it wasn't denying the visa, it was to keep the 
employee on payroll, have them sit there in their cube or at home, but continue to pay them until you had work for them to do. So because Congress had you know, fixed or addressed that problem, the agency didn't have discretion to come in with a new policy and contradict Congress, basically. So that, that specific work requirement was also tossed out. Okay. And, and the court, again, agreed with us on the issue of these short-term approvals, saying you have to actually explain why you're denying part of a visa. It, the law is pretty clear on that, and the agency wasn't doing it. And uh, I thought that was the least controversial aspect of, uh, of the, the IT serve case. And based on the way the court dealt with it, I think she, she saw it the same way, that that was not controversial at all. That's which, fantastic. Yeah. So what about, um, what about the uh, Defensor case? Does it still have any merit to it? So Defensor is basically limited to its facts, and the facts occurred under a prior law. So when the statute was updated in 1998, it basically rendered Defensor irrelevant to all new H-1B cases wow. on this issue. So, you know, going forward, when we start talking about, you know, strategies on petition filing, keeping that in mind and keeping the facts of defense are in mind and how you distinguish that from your current cases is, is going to be very important. Excellent. Okay. So great analysis and, and wonderful thing. So Newfeld memos out the 2018 uh, policy memo that was essentially enhancing Newfeld because of that, that must be out, right? Yeah. And that's the one yeah. that, that was, as in the title, itineraries and contracts, right? Yeah, and the itinerary regulation is likewise out because, right. yeah, for a variety of reasons, but mostly and, because. And Defensor, Defensor as their, uh, as their uh, uh, sword that they use is, is out. Yeah. So that's, that's huge, right? Um, but those cases weren't alone. And, and so that was March um, 10th, uh, but March was a big month for um, H-1B litigation, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I think uh, starting in, I think, late February and through March, the end of March, it seemed like every week there was another blow that the agency suffered in, right. in district court. The Ides uh, of March. <laughs> yeah, beware. <laughs> yeah. Definitely beware. Yes. Uh, A2 uh, Brutus. Uh, you, went, you went from <laughs> their side. Uh, you, went to the, uh, you went to our side, the side of lightness, and then beat them all up. So let's go through um, a few of those cases uh, quickly, so there's three that kind of run together. Uh, Taylor made DC District Court, March 31st, same day, same court, same judge, Info Labs, and 3Q um, also that month. And, and those were the issues of the degree requirement and specialty occupation and how we analyze the OOH or the Occupational Outlook Handbook. And that's a, what we do as adjudicators, or not adjudicators, what we do is, as uh, attorneys that put the cases in. When we discuss with our clients, um, what job do you want? First thing we do is go look at the OOH and under how do you become one tab, we, we see um, whether or not the OOH requires them to have a degree or a bunch of different degrees or, uh, or it's not really a degree and to what extent it's not really a requirement. So is it the norm? that they have the degree, is that most have the degree, or that some have the degree. And it, when we're looking at that, we're trying to make a decision maybe whether or not, uh, you know, it's this job or a different job. 
So tell us, um, for folks like me and companies uh, that are attorneys putting these cases in, in companies, what did, what did those three cases do to our analysis? So it was interesting because we, we analyzed a lot of decision letters, denial letters, and started seeing trends. And what the, the main trend was that the agency seemed to be interpreting its regulations to require that every U.S. worker doing a job has to have the same specific degree in order for it to qualify as a specialty occupation. Right. And this was definitely true in the computer-related employment cases. But you know, you, you compare that trend and the language in those decisions with the actual law, and the law says that in order to qualify as a specialty occupation, well, first the, the law breaks it down into three basic elements, right? The H-1B job, the position, must require a highly specialized body of knowledge, it must require a degree in the specific specialty, and then it have, must have a beneficiary who's qualified by virtue of degree and ability to do the highly specialized knowledge. So these denials were all based on that second prong, that degree requirement, right. which says in the, the regulation, it qualifies as a specialty occupation if the U.S. workers doing the job normally have a degree in a specific specialty, right. commonly have it, or usually have it, right. which is markedly different than always have it, which is what the agency was requiring you to prove. And so we, in all of those cases, they were looking at language in the OOH that said, most people have a degree in computer science, mm -hmm. which most is, you know, it's not exactly quantified, but it's definitely more than 51%. Normal would also indicate somewhere north of 51%, same with common and usual. So, Looking at it, you know, we made the argument that the language in the regulation requires a 51% test. Right. The agency is requiring a 100% test. Right. Clearly, there's a disconnect. And the court agreed. The courts... They even the, tried in one of them, in the inspection expert, right? They, they, yeah. they said 70%, right? They're, they're coming out with numbers all over the place, but they actually put a number on that one, didn't they? Yeah, which is, which is interesting on a variety of levels. But, right. Uh, I get to 70, <laughs> right? But, but uh, you know, the courts in all of those cases pretty much rejected out of hand the agency's decisions and right. said, no, this, this is a ridiculous requirement that contradicts your own regulations. You can't do that because they've met their burden of proof of showing that it's normal, common, or usual for a degree in computer science in order to do this job. It also contradicts the statute that doesn't require you to have any degree because you can have you know experience equating to a degree right. so if they pretty much eliminated have, that in the recent years yeah really tough to get those anymore yeah Work so it it contradicted the reg it contradicted the statute and just across the board if the ooh has language in there that says most have a degree in a specific specialty i don't see the agency defending those very vehemently going forward they'll probably end up settling those cases in the future oh very good so under, under the specialty occupation, there's some language in, the, in these cases um, where um, the difference between an occupation and a job, right? And um, an occupation is a, a professor, a job is an English professor, right? Mm -hmm. um, there was one where they um, had made that uh, analysis of spe specificities of degrees being so narrow, right? 
along those lines. Can you take us through that analysis and, and that language? Yeah, this, you see this a lot in engineering cases. Right. And the agency will say, no, it's not a specialty occupation because you, you have a variety of engineering degrees that could qualify. Right. And that was one of the issues in inspection experts that was tossed right. out. And the court just said, no, engineering qualifies. Your reg says engineers are a specialty occupation. There's none of this quibbling about whether or not it's a structural engineer, or mechanical engineer. Yeah, there's a common body of, of coursework that applies to all of these different types of engineers. And it's, you know, that skill that makes it right. a specialty occupation. Well, that's, that, that's really nice how they broadened that up because, I mean, we saw them making distinctions between an electrical engineer um, and a computer science engineer um, where we, could, we would actually look at their coursework, right? Yeah. And we would map out their transcript and say, this class is what gave them the knowledge to do. We're getting it to that point and we're having success with it, but mm. you shouldn't have to do that. Right. And yeah. that was the that's you know, that's the game that we've been playing that we've had to play harder and harder and harder um, every time they would tighten the screws. Right. And just lift that bar of what's what's approvable um, a little bit higher. Well, the, the irony is the adjudicators that are you know evaluating these cases, they're not required to have any degree, let alone right. a degree in a specific yeah, specialty for the occupation. Right. So it, it used to be publicly available on their website under right. the adjudicator field manual, what the re degree requirements were for adjudicators. But after we had included that as an exhibit in three or four cases, they took that down. So it's no longer available publicly. Right, right. <laughs> it, it's hard to explain to an extraordinary ability person um, how come their case was uh, denied um, and how you know whoever made that decision uh, couldn't couldn't stand in the same room with them on what they're talking about yet. Uh, yeah. you know, their dream was dashed over over something along that. So that that's good stuff. So um, great takeaway there that the position itself must be normal, common, usual. The fifty one percent test. That's a good thing. Um, the next case um, that you guys won that was really uh, critical um, and interesting. I like you talked about is the bar chart case. Tell us about bar chart and uh, what was won there. So bar, part, bar chart is just a, a very straight up Administrative Procedure Act issue where the employer provided a very thorough description of the job and in why the job required a degree in computer science. Right. And the agency just ignored that piece of information and ignored the letter from the employer. Right. And the court, it was a relatively short decision as decisions in federal court go. The court just said, uh, actually, you're required to look at this. They did address your concern that's in your denial letter, and you just didn't look at the, the facts and the evidence supporting it, which, you know, when you think about a, an employer letter, a, a well-crafted employer letter, really is an expert letter, right? Right. Because the employer should be the expert in whatever their company does sure. and what they need. They're the, they right. know better than anybody else. And so really by failing to look at expert testimony that was provided with the petition, you know, the agency was just kind of riding off on its own and making a kind of a crazy decision, which in um, the other case, the TaylorMade case, there's some interesting language in that one as well from the court where they had a 
a professional evaluator, a college professor, mm-hmm. who interviewed the, the president of the company, talked to him about the position, the manager, the, the person, and got all kinds of details and said, you know, wrote up a very, very thorough evaluation, kind of like what you were talking about, where they looked at, you know, the coursework and the OOH and the, uh, the ONET and described why a degree in computer right. science is required for that position. Right. And the agency dismissed the expert testimony because he didn't do an in-person visit. He didn't fly out to Chicago to do the in-person right. <laughs> interview. Yeah. And the court took issue with that and said, we're really troubled by the, what uh, the agency is requiring. We don't understand what more the adjudicator could have done in this scenario. You know, you're dealing with a speculative visa filing. You know, you don't know if it's going to get approved or not. And to expend, you know, $20,000 in travel expenses and expert fees for a, a you know, a, a possible visa is just unreasonable. Which plays in well with a, a Supreme Court case, the, the B-Singer, I think it's the B-Singer case. No, B-Stick. B-Stick v. Berry Hill. Right. That recently, I think it was a 2019 case. Mm-hmm. And Beestick v. Berryhill, the court invalidated a social security decision for failing to consider expert testimony, you know, expert letters. And I think the trend that we are going to be pushing for in the future is really to give more credence and more respect and deference to expert letters in immigration as well. That's fantastic. And that, we use them a lot. Right, and so we mm-hmm. use them for extraordinary ability. The expert letters are are, are part of every process. Um, what we do with our experts is have them evaluate all the evidence, and then come from the perspective of an expert. Right, so mm-hmm. you know we have Jim. I'm looking at a picture over here of Nadia Comaneci. Right, so uh, we use Nadia in in, in gymnastics uh, adjudications because I'm not Nadia Comaneci. I don't know gymnastics. The adjudicator doesn't know gymnastics. So how about somebody that's from that industry? Have them look at this evidence. And I look at evidence as it comes in three parts. You have primary evidence, which is like a brick. It's like a contract. It's a job description. It's a, it's a, it's a check, right? And then you have secondary evidence, and that's the opinion letters. And there's two types. There's the expert that doesn't know you, but they are experts. They're not Ikomenichi. She knows a good gymnast. You and I yeah. may not, but she knows why they're a good gymnast. She can look at their technique. She can look at their background. She can also look at the things they accomplished and be able to tell us that winning this competition means something. While this one might have a good name, it's really not, nobody goes to that, right? It just sounds good, right? So the experts are really valuable from the extraordinary ability thing to go into that that scenario. And then the other type of opinion letters, the other secondary evidence are reference letters, right? Those are the people that are in the company that can talk about I can tell you what the job title says. I can show you the job uh, duty letter, the employment letter, but I'm really going to tell you the day-to-day things that this person does. And we, we, we use them to dig down, especially in RFEs, when they don't get it. Here's what really happens in the company and stuff like that. And then we call tertiary evidence anything that supports either one or two. So there may be an article about the expert, show the expert's any good. There might be an article about the award that was won even though that person's not in it, but it says the award's good, right? In, in H-1Bs, we've only used experts the last couple of years. And we mm-hmm. found the same experience you just said, where they would throw the entire expert letter opinion out because there wasn't uh, an interview, right? So what we did after that is we'd get a conference call and we'd get the owner of the company, we'd get one or two people that did the same job 
we'd have the expert write down notes and then we would attach the notes <laughs> to the to the letter and then we would use them and they would go over you know all the things we'd have them analyze the oh we'd have them bring in and they and then so what after at the beginning they throw them out without that then they threw out if they didn't have any source material right if the expert didn't go out and find some other body of something besides themselves um and bring that in and say it which almost eliminated the expert being the expert didn't it i mean it's like yeah. oh we could do that. So then that happened. So I was really happy uh, with the Beastie case because in that case, it said the expert's opinion, even without evidence, was evidence. And mm -hmm. what we've seen these adjudicators do is just either like in that in the uh, um, the bar chart case, they just ignored it. Right. They They said, we've seen your employment letter and it doesn't say whatever it wanted it to say. And they ignored the fact that the expert letter did say it. Right. Like it wasn't yeah. there. And then they came back and said, look, you know, agency, it's it's there in the expert letter. That's where it goes. So these are these are massive victories. John. These are massive victories for us um, to to reference this sort of stuff when when we're going forward. So that's that's really good stuff. And, and all of it, you know, so recent and in all of it right before the coronavirus. I don't know how much really people understand what has happened in the change of immigration based on this, because usually we learn of change of immigration by immigration tell us it, telling what their new <laughs> memo is, right? Yeah. They, they, they haven't told us about your cases, right? If you're, not, if you're not keeping up with this stuff, and most of us don't, right? I mean, I, I did because I was involved in the process to find you, but I think most immigration attorneys don't know these cases happen, don't know how to use them, typically don't anyway. And I think that segues into, um, these memos still exist, don't they? I mean, they haven't they haven't repealed it. What's what's happening post these massive victories, the Ides of March? So, the government has a deadline of May 11th to right. file an appeal if they're going to appeal. Mm -hmm. If uh, my sense is, if they were going to appeal, they would have filed a, a motion to stay the judgment, right? So that they wouldn't have to go through, reopen all these petitions, and re-adjudicate them. They haven't filed that motion to stay. It, by all indications, it looks like they're not going to file an appeal mm -hmm. so far. And from what we are seeing them do in other cases, it looks like they're going to repudiate and abandon the policy memo and the policies. They're going to abandon the common law test for employer-employee relationship and just go with an application of the regulation. Nice. They're going to abandon this specific work assignment. And also going forward, they realize that if they're going to shorten approval periods, they have to give some other explanation in writing other than employer-employee relationship and the specific work assignment reg. Right. So that's what I think we're looking at, but we won't have anything clear and definitive probably until after May 11th. Right. And these are interesting times right now. You know, I mean, we just got through the lottery. We were given mm -hmm. 90 days from the end of the lottery. Most of us found out um, on April 30th, uh, March 30th, I'm sorry, that we have 90 days. That's June 31st um, to file these things. But we just had the presidential proclamation come down. And while it didn't address non-immigrant visas, in the proclamation, it says in 30 days, which will be um, April 23rd, um, the, uh, not April 23rd, May 23rd. Um, they will, uh, the president will meet with a couple of different agencies to determine if there's an impact 
of non-immigrant visas, which include H-1Bs, on U.S. workers. So we're under a deadline uh, to get these things in, and I think all of us think let's not let's not wait till it's too late uh, to do that. So the the memos are still in full force and effect. Um, maybe not full force and effect. They still haven't been repealed, and the adjudicators still have them on their desk, right? So an adjudicator yeah. gets your H-1B application. They haven't been told by policy, at least that we know of, that uh, this isn't good law. So we can kind of expect um, that they, they're still going to use this process. So, you know, we've decided, you know, we, we write a brief um, mm-hmm. that we're going to put in. I shared that with you. Um, yeah. what, how, how should I and how should other attorneys be, be doing that? What's our brief do and, and how is that? How, how, how do you think that approach um, works? So, you know, we, we talked about your, your brief and I think it hits the right tone in that the adjudicators are going off of a, a checklist and they're right. using right. templates to do everything until that checklist is updated by their boss or their boss's boss. Right. And until those templates that they're using for RFEs and decisions are updated, they're going to keep doing the same thing they've always been doing. So it'll take a while for change to come from the top to impact the, the day-to-day operations. So they're still going off of those same yeah. same issues. So kind of like what you did in, in your brief, it's important to highlight, hey, these cases are out here. This is you know, the opinion of a very well-respected judge in DC. We, we can sue in DC if we need to, but even if these policies were legit and legal, yeah. we satisfy them because. So you kind of belt and suspend your visa petition for an H-1B. I, um, I appreciate that. So how we kind of did it to kind of the, the dynamic or the, uh, the architecture of the brief, like you architected your, um, your lawsuit, is a couple of things. Number one, uh, we have that stuff. If we do need to litigate that we've made the statement, they've ignored the statement, and uh, that's going to make them look worse if we have to go to court. Yeah. How, how we do it is uh, we say there's a memo. Here's what the memo says, and we comply with the memo to the extent that we can. Now, a lot of times for the staffing companies, they can't get a third-party letter. Um, They can't get a contract between the vendor and the third party. Now, for those who don't know what that is, is that a lot of times you have a petitioning company, which is the staffing company that hires the person, and then they have a vendor who has an agreement with a third party to give them people, and then they go to the third-party site, and sometimes the vendor tells the third party, you don't have to worry about this. Right? We're going to bring people in. We'll bring them out. They're amongst all these different things. And that's where, really where a lot of these cases have been denied is not being able to show all the contracts all the way around. It's not that our clients don't want to have an itinerary. They know one as good as they can, but there's this third party that's not really interested in dealing with it. And it just doesn't most of the time. So what, with what we're doing is, number one, we try to make all the documents talk to these issues that have been raised in that and we put it in we say okay here's how we comply with your itinerary memo and then we say for the record <laughs> here's how these have been interpreted by the courts and we we're very clear that the memo's gone and the and the fencer's gone and all this sort of stuff but we're not starting off with a fight right yeah. we're just like at the <laughs> introductory conversation with our opposing counsel and saying hey glad you're aboard we respect you and what you're doing but you know what we've been doing this for a while we know where this, how this thing should be interpreted. Go do your own analysis of it and come back and tell me what you think of your case, right? So by doing it like that, we're not coming out and punching them in the face. Now, if they give us an RFE, we've already told them once. 
we can really, we can turn up the heat at that point. And really what we're trying to do is eliminate the art. If we do it this way and they're looking at, do I approve this case? Just like yours, like the cases that you have that are pending that determination, 100% approval, because they know you're going to litigate it, right? So for us, they know, okay, this is set up for litigation. Um, they're telling us what cases that have already addressed this issue specifically. So we're instructing them, we're teaching them if they haven't, if they didn't know it themselves. And then, so their choice is, you know, why don't we just approve this? And we think statistically that'll go up. And that's what's happened to us when we were breaking down these cases last year. We had a 95% approval last year. We're hoping that that goes up this year because of your cases that you've won. Um, but I, you know, just like we can't promise that our clients aren't going to get an RFP, even though we get less than most do, um, you know, we, it's good to have you. And, and I want to turn back to your structure, which was really, really exciting when we were looking on behalf of the many IT serve companies. Some of them were doing very, very well, but some of them are too small and they can't, they couldn't take on the typical cost of a federal litigation. So do you want to talk a little bit about how you do the cost of these types of visas if anybody out there wants to litigate a short-term approval or, or a denial? Yeah, sure. I, I think it's the immigration world is used to everything being on a flat rate and sure. I, for, for obvious reasons. And we really don't depart from that, that model nice. or structure. So everything's a flat rate. And what we try to do to bring costs down for the, the companies and the clients is take people with the identical issue, put them together in one case, because we're allowed to do that under the joinder rules, right. as long as the legal issue is the same. And that decreases the cost of litigation substantially sure. for them. Now, even though the agency is most likely going to acquiesce to the court's decision in IT serve, that doesn't mean they're going to go back and retroactively approve everything that was denied based on, on those rules. Right. So if you're, sure. yeah. So if you've got a, an H1B that was denied for one of those reasons, like it's a cap H1B mm -hmm. and you want to get that back, litigation is really going to be your only option. That's fantastic. And it's going to be the odds of success now with that IT serve decision, I think are far higher than they would be without it. So uh, like you said, we can't guarantee your results, but if I were betting, I would probably bet my house on the fact that we'll, we'll prevail in these cases. The other one, you know, but for those, those employer employee ones, we're usually in specific work denials right now around about 3000 a piece for those. For the short-term approval cases, what we do, anything that was approved for less than the requested period. So say, you know, they gave you a month or six months or something like that. We're suing on those ones and it's cheaper because the, the legal issue is a little sim more simple. And those ones are just doing it at a flat rate of a thousand dollars because we can, we believe we can run them through cost effectively at that range. Fantastic price. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it costs to get a visa. Right. And um, yeah. you know, so your, your prices are not far off of us. Uh, our prices for putting a case in. And that's really, really fantastic. And, and guys, I mean, if you didn't hear what John just said, um, being able to take a case that was denied for $3,000 or approved for too short of a time for $1,000 is money very well spent. And here's another thing that my clients have asked, asked us when they were deciding about this. And I know a lot of the IT Serve Alliance clients were, it's like, oh, if we sue the government, are we going to be blacklisted? Are we going to be the bad guys? Are they are they going to come after us? So, John, tell us what your experiences have been for companies that have 
you know, had the guts to litigate and punch back after being thrown down for their milk money. So, uh, so like I said, all, all three of the attorneys in the firm worked for the Justice Department. And all three of us had the same opinion, which is if we ever got a hint that there was going to be retaliation against somebody, we would have thrown a fit and we would have engaged our leadership and there would have been hell to pay because the Justice Department has respect and credibility because they're supposed to play by the rules. Right. Now, I'm the only one of the three of us that actually worked for USCIS mm -hmm. directly. And I would say, I will tell you that there were times where I had to review potential litigation cases and there was nothing in the, the case file that suggested that they were going to court, that they, were, they weren't even threatening to sue. And the only thing that made it a potential litigation case was that that company had sued before in the past. And a potential litigation case was basically code for, don't deny this unless you absolutely have to because we don't want to go to court again. Nice. So they're very sensitive to litigation and they try to avoid it at all costs. So I, yeah. I think, will you, uh, they don't keep a list of people that have sued, like that's written down, but there's a mental list and it's good to be on that list. That's excellent news. Uh, we, really, we really enjoyed, uh, and, and with your help, uh, having that victory in, in New Orleans for our client. And, uh, you know, it just, um, right now, immigration's become harder and harder. And that analogy of being pushed down for your lunch money is, is what it's felt like. And, uh, you know, to punch back and, and, and have a judge agree with you um, really feels good. And I know some of the clients um, that, that have signed up for you and, and have won this, and they're ecstatic about what's happened. And so, um, you know, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't recommend you higher. Uh, if anybody else there is watching, um, you know, interviewing John, having our guest Jonathan Wasden right now on immigration, our conversations about immigration. Um, go to our YouTube page, uh, Online Visas right now, like and share this. This is really good information for anybody that uh, wants a visa uh, as a company that needs a visa or just has friends and uh, family members that need this. Uh, spread this around. This is great news. You can get with Jonathan. Uh, John, why don't you give us your contact information so people can get in touch with you directly? Yeah, sure. Easiest way is to go to our website, which is wasdenbanas.com. That's W-A-S-D-E-N-B-A-N-I-A-S.com. And my email is jdwasden at wasdenbanas.com. And my partner is brad at wasdenbanas.com. And Jeff Forney is at jeff at wasdenbanas.com. Jeff is spelled G-E-O-F-F. -F. <laughs> Excellent. Um, well, that's great stuff, Jonathan. Um, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate you. This was a really long talk, but really, really informative. Um, one of the best conversations I've ever been engaged in on really getting into the nuances of how to deal with the United States uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services when they deny your case. And your solution is fantastic, both on a cost level and an effectiveness level. Uh, so I, I couldn't suggest you high enough. It's great to talk to you. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll be in touch soon. Thank you. Look forward to working with you. All right. Bye-bye. Take care.